Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today we are continuing Dr. Newfeld's study of Acts with a new series called Jesus Goes Global, The Missionary Enterprise. So let's turn in our Bibles to Acts 13, verses 1 to 3, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. I have no doubt that the thing that causes persecution against the church, it's her insistence on evangelism, seeking of the conversion of people, not only from every racial and ethnic group on earth, but also among every religious group, along with the conversion of every lifestyle, every sexual ethic, every philosophical system. Seen from that perspective, Christianity is an aggressive faith. It seeks conversions everywhere. You know, in great many places on earth, that's unacceptable. It's often the case that countries will say they respect the rights of people to worship as they please, but they'll also insist that seeking converts upsets the social order. And for that reason, seeking to make converts is simply not acceptable. You know, I, for my part, understand this sentiment. You know, leave people alone and respect the rights of all religions to simply coexist. But here's where the problem begins. Christians have a mandate by none other than Jesus himself. His last command to his followers was as follows. Matthew 28, 19 to 20, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now to be clear, that mandate does not mean that there should be a dominant culture that seeks to suppress the culture of others. I mean, nowhere in the New Testament do we find a mandate to create a Christian state. Jesus never taught that eventually his followers would create nation states that would put into place laws that demand that non-believers be obedient to the faith. And the book of Acts is not the story of an expanding church with the use you know, of the power of human governments or the use of armies. The Christian faith, it is faithful to the teaching of Jesus, resolutely refuses to use the rule of law to advance the faith. I've said it before, and I'm going to say it again. The book of Acts, which is the story of the early church for its first 30 years, it's a story against all odds. Indeed, for those who are interested in the matter, the first 300 years of the church from 33 to 311 saw the church advance when there were absolutely no laws protecting its rights. In 311, Galerius issued an edict ending the Diocletian persecution of Christianity, and two years later in 313, the Edict of Milan issued by Constantine ordered that the Roman Empire would now be tolerant of Christianity and no longer persecute it for practicing its faith. Well, prior to that, Christianity functioned without any legal protection. Now, while there is so much to be thankful for, that is, when the Christian faith is protected by law, we can't, on the other hand, say there's anything to be thankful for when the Christian faith is given favored status by law or when it politically rules a nation. The Christian faith is not that kind of a faith. It simply does not seek that kind of power. You know, I can think of two important passages of Scripture that highlight that. First, Matthew 20, 25 to 28 says, But Jesus called to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. 
But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And the second text comes from Jesus' words while he was standing trial before Pilate. So consider carefully the words of John 18, 33 to 36. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it about me? And Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, You're out. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. And I would argue that the idea of the separation of church and state, that's not an idea that comes from the secular world. It's it's the Christian ideal. We do pray that the state might protect us and that our right to practice our most holy faith would also be protected. But if they do not, we will still practice our most holy faith. And I mention all of this as an introduction to a new series I'm beginning today. And it's a series based on Acts chapters 13 to 15. You know, this is a series designed to challenge us afresh on what's required of us to fulfill our Lord's command to make disciples from men and women of all nations. But it's also a series designed to help us to see what is not required. See, what's not required is the permission of the rule of law. But here I need to stop before I'm misunderstood. See, the followers of Jesus are called upon to look for ways in which we might be subject to the laws of whatever nation in which we live. We're called upon to submit to governing authorities. We're not revolutionaries. We don't seek the overthrow of governments and least of all, the government of our own nation. We want to be known as law-abiding and respectful people. But at the same time, we have a higher command, that is, the command of Jesus. And we do not require the permission of governments to carry on the Great Commission. We do seek their protection, but we do not seek their advice. We seek their protection, but we do not seek their resources or their money or their considerable power to advance our agenda. We do not seek to partner with government to carry out the Great Commission. The Great Commission is a commission given to the followers of Jesus. Now back to the book of Acts. The book consists of 28 chapters, and the book is easily divided into two halves. The first 12 chapters chronicle the beginning of the church in Jerusalem, where it grew very quickly. It would well have become the faith of all Israel had not the Jewish religious establishment persecuted this movement so vigorously. But Luke, the writer of the book of Acts, is more than a historian. He's also a prophet of God, and as a prophet of God, Luke is also interested to show us the sovereign hand of God even in the midst of persecution. Let's look at some examples of that. Luke cites Peter in Acts 2.23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. That is to say, Jesus was crucified at the hands of evil men, sure enough, but it was God's plan in the end. Or consider Acts 4, 27 to 28. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And the interesting thing about Acts 4, 27 and 28 is that this verse is a part of a prayer 
after Peter and John had both been arrested and then released with the threat that more arrests would follow unless the church ceased preaching Jesus and calling for conversions. What that prayer meant was this. Even as Jesus was crucified according to the predestined will of God, so also the church was being persecuted according to the predestined will of God. So let me restate it clearly. The ones persecuting the church were evil men. They acted out of wickedness, and their wickedness was a crime against God. But Luke knows that even the wicked do not escape God's predetermined will, for he will use even persecution against the church to advance the gospel. And that's what Acts records. A great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem following the stoning of Stephen. And it caused many of the believers to be scattered, and I would suppose that was the bad news. But the good news was that those that were scattered went into regions throughout Judea and Samaria and winning many. Eventually, Peter would be led to the city of Caesarea, the city in Israel that that housed the main Roman occupying garrison, and he would win a centurion to faith in Christ. Next, Acts 11.19 says, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. While they were going to go only to the diaspora, that is, the dispersion of Jews in these places. But then we read the next verse, Acts 11.20. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And then two verses later, in verse 22, the report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they said, Barnabas to Antioch. And then Acts 11.25-26. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. And it was in Antioch that something amazing happened. A church made up of Jews and Gentiles. And that's not the end of the story. It would seem that the Antioch church, because of the way it was founded, had a vision for worldwide mission. In short order, this church would take the lead in the first missionary enterprise. And that's where Acts 1 to 12 leaves off. And that's where Acts 13 begins. Hi, this is Ben Lowell from Back to the Bible Canada. We believe Bible teaching is critical for God's people. And your support is critical in making the daily Bible teaching program with Dr. Newfeld available on this station. But we know there's times when you may miss the radio program, so we want to remind you of all the opportunities available for free for your use and convenience. At backtothebible.ca, you can search through a library of messages and series, both audio and video with Dr. John, but also learn more about our ministry podcasts, YouTube channels, mobile applications, and print resources. Our desire is to serve you so that the Bible teaching you can trust is available to as many people in as many ways as possible. For more information or to support this Bible teaching ministry, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. Acts 13, 1-3. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. 
While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Well, there can be no doubt that the church in Antioch has become an important center of the Christian church. And if you don't know where it was, well, it was in what is now the nation of Syria. That is to say, it was north of Israel, and for that reason, it was not in Israel. The church had responded to the call of Jesus to go into the world, and now for the first time, one of the most important churches was not in Israel at all. You know, in our time period, that doesn't sound unusual, does it? But it certainly was then. After all, Jesus was the fulfillment of the promises of the law and the prophets. He was the long-expected Jewish Messiah. I mean, how in the world would one come to terms with, you know, uncircumcised, pork-eating Gentiles? But increasingly, at least for a short period of time, the Christian church in Antioch would stand at the center of the Christian world. In the book of Acts, Luke mentions the church of Antioch not once or twice, but 14 times. Paul in the book of Galatians also refers to this church. And that's important because it's quite likely that Galatians is Paul's very first letter. And that was quite likely that it was written shortly after the Council of Jerusalem, an event we're going to discuss at some length when we get to Acts 15. Now, what do we know about this church? Well, let's begin with the the names of the leaders we find there. Luke mentions five of them. Barnabas is mentioned first, and as we've already seen, he, he plays a vital role in this church. No, he he didn't plant the church, but he was a trusted teacher of the word, and he was sent by the Jerusalem church to teach and train the leaders in Antioch. His job was clear. Preach the apostolic doctrine. Make sure that this church is founded on the truth. And remember, at this time, there is no New Testament. There's also no statement of faith. That would come later. And because the apostles were appointed by Jesus as reliable witnesses of his ministry, And because Jesus has promised that the Holy Spirit would oversee what the apostles taught, ensuring that in every way, the information they gave regarding the teaching and the ministry of Jesus, along with the implication of what all of it meant, it was important that the entire church would listen to the apostles because they were guided by the Spirit. Clearly, Barnabas must have distinguished himself. He had given himself to learning the apostolic teaching and doctrine, and he was to be trusted. And so his presence in the church of Antioch ensured that both in Jerusalem and in Antioch, all believers were taught the exact same truth. And again, it's it's important to know we can't overemphasize this. Barnabas' role in this church was vital. The second leader mentioned here is a man named Simeon, who is also called Niger. You know, we have to assume that The name Simon was a quite common name, and so calling him Niger helped to distinguish which person we were talking about. But why Niger? Well, it's a Latin word. It simply means black. Most commentators therefore assume it refers to his complexion, his skin color. We assume therefore that most likely he was a native of North Africa. And so please remember that very early on, there's a vibrant Christian movement that came into being in that part of the world. Now, as to how Niger ended up in Antioch, we can only guess. Some have thought that he initially had been to Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, that he was a God-fearer, and he heard the message of Jesus then, and he had believed. And then with the persecution, he had ended up in Antioch. And again, that's a guess, but that might not be far off. At any rate, this North African became a key leader in the church. The next man mentioned is Lucius of Cyrene. 
Well, not much is known about him outside of his name, but the name Lucius, a Latin name, and we have to assume he's therefore a Roman. He probably came to Christ at the same time as Niger, also having been in Jerusalem and having been driven out in persecution. One possibility is that later on, he became keenly involved in Paul's ministry. I say that because of the greeting that Paul would send to the Roman Christians. In Romans 16, verse 21, Paul writes, Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. Is that the same Lucius? Well, possibly. Next, we come to the fourth leader in the church, and he's identified as Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch. And, and clearly, this man is of royal descent. It seems likely that he was a foster brother of Herod Antipas. Yeah, that's the very same Herod who beheaded John the Baptist. And I have to imagine that Menaean's conversion would have been quite a story. And here he is, not only a Christian, but a key leader in the church. And of course, the last of the five is Saul of Tarsus, or as we think of him as Paul, the apostle of Jesus. But he's listed last, and we have to imagine that, that Saul would have been delighted in that way. He's comfortable with modesty, with humility. So what have we learned about the church in Antioch? Well, it's a key church, and its leaders are a mini UN. Already, right now, this church reflects the ideal of Jesus. People taken from the vast array of nations and cultures having found their commonality in Jesus. So what kind of a leadership is it? Well, Luke tells us that these five men were prophets and teachers. Now, teaching is a role that's not unfamiliar to most of us, but, but they were also prophets. The New Testament church recognized the significant role of the prophetic ministry. We've already met in Acts chapter 11, a man named Agabus. It says, and one of them, Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. That is, prophets would speak what God wanted his church to know and do in the present hour. And because there was going to be a famine, well, immediately the church understood that they were to be involved in providing relief. And now in Antioch, with the awareness that God wanted to speak directly to this important church, the five leaders are fasting and praying. And as they're fasting and praying, we're not told how long, but as this was going on, the Holy Spirit spoke. Well, we don't have to guess how that happened. It would have happened through one of the prophets who would have been given a specific word from God for that church. And by the way, we need to stop here for just a moment and, and get a sense of this. Notice it was not the, the governing authorities that told the church what role she was to play in society. And furthermore, the church leaders, well, they didn't conduct a scientific survey as to what were the greatest needs out there and how the church might address them. I mean, the very nature of the prophetic office was a reminder to the church that Jesus himself, through the Holy Spirit, would give her direction. To those who find you know, themselves nervous about that state of things and can only imagine how you know, that could so easily be abused with, you know, with out-of-control prophets you know, running around with all manner of contradictory and confusing prophecies. Let's remember the context here, shall we? Barnabas and Saul, or Paul, had already been teaching the apostolic doctrine right here. The center of the church's activity was not in getting prophetic words, but in learning the teachings of Jesus and of the objective truth that came from him. And furthermore, these prophets were demonstrated and trusted leaders of truth in their community. 
They weren't wild-eyed, half-baked zealots who imagined themselves to be more important than they were. Rather, the prophets were completely in tune both with the church leadership and with the apostolic doctrine. Now then, notice this. What they said changed history. The Holy Spirit, they announced, had given a role for this church to play. The church was to appoint Barnabas and Saul to the work which the Holy Spirit had called them. And as we know from the rest of the book of Acts, that role was to take the gospel of Jesus and preach it through Asia Minor, then on into Greece, finally into Rome, and then to the regions beyond. That is, these men were to be missionaries proclaiming the gospel of Jesus in city after city that had never heard of Jesus, and then go beyond that even. They were to establish churches in city after city and begin the global, worldwide Christian movement. And so after a period of fasting and praying, the text said they laid hands on these two men. And this practice of laying on of hands is the very beginning of ordination, the acknowledgement that the Holy Spirit has called these people. And I find it fascinating that the church in Antioch didn't seek the approval of the church in Jerusalem. And so we see that while the early church was accountable to the apostles for the apostolic message, every local church was free to respond to the leading of the Holy Spirit and to do what the Holy Spirit was directing them. And with this global mission begins, it begins not with worldly power or the promise of worldly protection. It begins not with the best research modality. It begins by trusting in Jesus through his spirit. And with that, the impossible story begins. It seems likely that this was a wild-eyed dream destined to fail, but it didn't fail, as we will see. Christ was in it. John, thanks so much for your message today. You know, when we think about beginning a mission or even participating in any ministry for that matter, where should we take our cues from? Yeah, Ben, I think this is very important. Just let's review that part. We don't take our cue from the government, or we don't take our cue from, you know, how open the door seems to be. Uh, We take our cue from the Word of God, and by prayer, listening to the Holy Spirit as He's speaking to us, that becomes our cue for moving forward in ministry. Um, So in that sense, we're making a complete distinction or a separation between what the government asks of us and what the Spirit of God asks of us. We are the people of Jesus, and we do his bidding and his alone. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, Jesus Goes Global, the missionary enterprise right here on Back to the Bible Canada. Bible teaching you can trust. We're praying that 2022 would be a year that you'd experience the fellowship of the Lord like no other. We believe earnestly to do this means to commit ourselves to prayer and to the reading and study of God's Word. So we want to encourage you to make a commitment to read through the Bible this year. There are so many resources available that can assist you in achieving this goal, including Dr. John's reading plan, available at backtothebible.ca or printed in our bi-monthly Truth in Life magazine, and it's free just for your asking. Whatever resource you choose, your commitment to reading the Bible every day will allow you the opportunity to know the God of the Bible as never before. 
For more information about Back to the Bible Canada, its resources, or to support this ministry, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.